You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. You know, I had a very strange message from a conspiracy group in the UK, and they were furious with me because they said, even we don't believe you. Investigative journalist Annie Jacobson. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Jewel Thompson. Well, let's play a game of word association. I'll say a phrase, and you think of the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay, ready? Area 51. Now, did you respond by thinking about conspiracy theories, rumors, conjecture, aliens? Well, Area 51, which, by the way, is not its official name, is such a highly classified United States Air Force installation that for many decades the U.S. government wouldn't even acknowledge its existence. Let alone, could we find out anything that actually went on at Area 51? That is, until 2011, when investigative journalist Annie Jacobson wrote a meticulously researched book called simply Area 51. She managed to track down and talk to several of the men who had worked there for decades, decades earlier, men in their 70s and 80s now, who revealed to her some of what went on at Area 51. So, here now, from 2011, Annie Jacobson. I have to tell you, I've been interviewing, I've interviewed thousands of authors over the last 26 years. It's very, it's extremely rare for me to interview the author of a book that revealed so much new information, I don't even know where to start exactly. So uh, how do you get your arms around a story like that? I can't imagine the kind of patience it must take to put together one jigsaw puzzle piece at a time in a story that has been so carefully and efficiently concealed for so long. Well, thank you for the kind words about my book, and I certainly feel the same way about it. And I feel that it was such an honor and a privilege to get to work with all of the men, these Cold War heroes, who opened up with me and shared their stories, things that they've kept secret for decades. And, you know, they're really a a legendary group of spies, scientists, spy pilots, engineers, physicists, who have been known among themselves, but not known to the outside world. And to be able to get down their stories and then make sense of it on a backdrop of the facts culled from the National Archives and the different agency archives, the Library of Congress archives, and put together the landscape of Area 51, that was really my aim, and I'm really pleased with the way I was able to do that. I couldn't help thinking that entire sections of the Wikipedia article will now have to be rewritten based on what you've uncovered. Or they won't be, because people will, and you know, I had a a, a very strange message uh, just the other day from a conspiracy group in the UK, and they were furious with me because they said, even we don't believe you. Well, you're never going to convince some people that there aren't all kinds of... But as you at one point in one context allude to, Occam's razor is at work in a lot of these cases. Well, absolutely. And because what I'm writing about is everything that goes on at Area 51, when it is going on, is top secret. And 
so it is a book about secrets. And everyone who is working at Area 51 on a top secret project is working under a very strict need to know. So all of their information is kept in a secret keeping system, which itself, the, the terms of that secret keeping system are classified. It's called TS slash SCI, top secret sensitive compartmentalized information. And so what one man knows that's working over in radar, the man who's working over in telemetry has no idea. And so by everyone's admission, no one knows the whole piece of the puzzle. And m what I put together was a part of a puzzle, but certainly there's so much more to be revealed. Would I be correct in guessing that you were a useful bee carrying pollen from one flower of knowledge to somebody else's flower? In other words, I'm guessing you pass along information that people probably, as you said, didn't know themselves for 40 or 50 years. Well, I'll give you a, a great example, because I think for me, I always relate to people. And so when something happens in like a human context, it makes a lot more sense. So a couple of the guys in my book, um, T.D. Barnes, who's a, a hypersonic expert, we were having lunch with Barnes, Colonel Slater, who was the commander of Area 51, and uh, Jim Friedman, all three guys who I write about at length in my book. And Commander, keep in mind, Colonel Slater was the commander of Area 51. So he was the highest ranking person that was not an official, like did not have an office in the Pentagon, let's put it that way. And Jim Friedman showed up at the lunch. And it turned out that Jim Friedman was the, the kind of assistant or attache or secretary, if you will, for Colonel Slater's boss, the CIA officer who was the liaison to Washington, and his name was Werner Weiss. And they called him the Desert Fox because he was so stealthy in everything he did. And it was wild to sit there with these two men in their late 80s, Colonel Slater and Jim Friedman, and hear Jim Friedman say things that even Colonel Slater did not know about. And it was just one of those moments where, and they sort of put the pieces together like, oh my God, of course, that was that piece of the puzzle and that was that. And that's, I think, a, I had that same reaction reading so many stories that you tell in this book. And I think most readers will have, except the, the furthest out conspiracy theorists, and they'll say, all right, that explanation about the U-2 sightings being mistaken for UFOs, that makes a lot of sense. Well, absolutely. The UFOs were, uh, the UFOs accounted for more than 50% of the original UFO sightings of that time period. And Alan Dulles was the director of the CIA at the time, and he begrudgingly opened up a UFO department of the CIA. And I say begrudgingly because at the time, you know, and Dulles himself was an old OSS officer, there was this idea among the CIA that they were kind of gentlemen spy masters. And this kind of UFO stuff was way above them. And they wanted to push it off on the Air Force, who at the time was running these different programs to investigate UFOs. These are all famous programs, Project Blue Book and so on. But you see in some of the declassified memos this reluctance by the CIA to have to deal with such plebeian things. But I'm guessing there's also a point at which the Soviet interest in UFOs became so rabid that we thought, well, gee, may maybe, maybe there's something to this after all. Maybe we ought to look into this. Well, absolutely. And of course, what I 
what I pose at the end of the book, which is quite controversial and raises a lot of those issues, deals with this subject. And what I'll say to that is this, is the second director of the CIA was a very interesting fellow named General Walter Bedell Smith. And he was such a powerful man. He had been Eisenhower's chief of staff during World War II. And after the war, he became Truman's ambassador to the Soviet Union. So if you put that in, con in context, you can imagine that there was nothing that the Soviets were up to in the late 1940s and early 50s that General Walter Bedell Smith didn't know about. And when he became CIA director, one of the first things that he impressed upon to the National Security Council was how dangerous UFOs were. Now, this, these are declassified CIA documents. And General Bedell Smith's fear was that the American public was prone to mass hysteria. And that's a quote from his documents. And he felt that if all of these UFO sightings were to kind of overwhelm America's early air defense warning system, then a real Soviet attack could happen because we'd be vulnerable. But what I found particularly fascinating, linking it up to Area 51, is that General Walter Bedell Smith refers to what he calls a Soviet hoax. That's what he was afraid of. And what I write in the very end of my book is what one source at Area 51 told me, that actually the Soviets did manage to get a flying craft into our airspace, and that was the original hoax. After this short break, Annie Jacobson reveals the UFO-Hitler connection. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 2011 interview with Annie Jacobson. You really do put an explanation on it that not only does make sense in the Occam's razor sort of way, but it's also one of the most horrifying stories when you bring in the Nazi Germany aspect to it, which also permeates so much of this book. The experience of writing it often, I often had that feeling. But what I will say is this, and you've touched upon a really important issue I raised in the book, which is the fact that right after the war, we, like the Soviets, had a race to get the, so the scientists who had originally worked for Hitler. They were the best and the brightest scientists in the world, allegedly. We wanted them, and so did the Soviets. We got Warner von Braun. That's just one example. And that was our project called Operation Paperclip. Now, to leave you with this thought, there are 600 million documents having to do with Operation Paperclip that remain classified. And many Area 51 documents are in that pile. So my ending, like the book itself, is a tip of the iceberg. And I really think that there'll, a lot of, a lot more information about this subject will come forth because there certainly are some people, like many of the sources in my book, who are in their late 80s who have information that they can share with us. Is it fair to say that the Nazi regime had developed technology that we have, that could now explain many, they, did they develop stealth? Did they develop the kind of hovering aircraft, the kind of odd-shaped aircraft. I mean, are these things from Europe and not from Mars? 
Well, that's a great question, and one of the criticisms I get is, you know, how can how can you how can we know this now and not know not have known this sooner? And I'll here's the best answer for that. There's a gentleman in my book named Jean Poteet, and he was one of the early Project Palladium developers of ECCMs and ECMs, electronic warfare in essence. And he was also the first CIA officer that was assigned to NRO, the National Reconnaissance office, an organization that was itself classified from when it was created in 1957 until 1992. So Jean Poteet shares with me how only in the past couple years have we been able to determine that it was actually Hitler who invented stealth, Hitler's regime, the Third Reich, who invented stealth, not our American scientists. The guys in my book invented CIA, invented stealth for the CIA, but Hitler had it first. And the two aerodynamicists who invented that were called the Horton brothers, famous for the flying wing. And they factor into the end of my story in a very interesting and evocative way. You've got fascinating stories in here as well. I mean, there's such a range of topics. You talk about the USS Pueblo, which is a whole other, that could have been a whole other book. The, the accidents slash incidents slash experiments with all the various nuclear weapons that have happened at Area 51 over the years. This is really, this is alarming stuff. Well, it really is a, it really is a puzzle. It's an enigma. And I say that, that, that Area 51 is kind of the, of the quintessential American riddle. And people are generally curious. And that's a great thing about Americans, a great thing about people in general. And I think that my book in that regard will raise many, just as many new questions as it offers answers. One thing that I'm sure you get as a journalist, I've gotten myself is, how could you reveal this stuff? You're an American. This is national security stuff. You're giving aid and comfort to the... Uh, did you have trepidation about what you were writing? Well, everything that was told to me, the great majority of everything that was told to me, has actually been declassified. You'll see, and if you read the note section of my book, which is over a 100 pages, I explain a lot of that, that... Sure, most Americans didn't know about the dirty bomb test we did at Area 13, which is in the outer reaches of Area 51, but the the documents had been declassified. It's just that they were buried. And that is the case with many of the projects that I write about. And the only real situation that I write about which has not yet been declassified is what I write in the very end of the book, and no doubt that is controversial. I'm, I'm hoping that you are able to ferret out more details of that story, because and I'm, I'm not trying to be too cryptic here for our listeners, but there is, it's, it's, it's a jaw-dropping ending in this book, and I'm really hoping that you can get, but as you said, most of these people are in their 80s or 90s, if they're still alive at all, I'm hoping that you get this information before it's too late. So do I, <laughs> yes. Annie Jacobson today lives in Southern California and is continuing her investigative work. Now, you can get a copy of Area 51 by Annie Jacobson by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Now, we may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 2000 interview with pioneering astronaut Gordon Cooper, who, as you'll hear, had his own encounter with Area 51. Finally, the president himself, LBJ, told me I was the one who ordered it confiscated, ordered it classified. 
that I had inadvertently filmed the runway at Area 51. And my 1999 interview with a guy who knows a thing or two about those conspiracy theories, Richard Belzer. After the Roswell crash, certain people were briefed on the crash, and Kennedy, when he was a congressman, was briefed on it. And then when he became president, he wanted to share our space technology with the Russians. So there is this kind of connection between UFOs and Kennedy, and uh, I'm not as mad as I seem. (laughs) And we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he had a very successful long NFL career. Then he became an actor, you know, for a famous scene from a Mel Brooks movie. And then he became a TV actor. He was a sports commentator. I talked with him in 1991 when he was an author. We'll revisit my 1991 interview with Alex Karras. We live with the idea that these guys have to get paid a tremendous amount of money in order to do what they do every Sunday, which is get the hell kicked out of them physically and give us a tremendous three hours of entertainment. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.